And now, a word from our sponsors. Now available on Amazon.com in print and Kindle. From Sweetie Cat Press, the Who's Who of Emerging Writers 2021, which includes the bios of 128 modern-day writers and seven essays by writing influencers. The bios answer the questions. What do they write? Where do they live? When did they start writing? Why do they write? And how you can find out more about them and more. I'm Christopher Bice. I'm the author of a New Age poetry book called Escaping the Darkness, Running from My Dreams. This isn't one of your grandmother's poetry books. Okay, I do some traditional poetry of love, death, and inspirations. But I also write about all the insanity hiding in my mind. Come experience the stories that are fleeing a tortured mind. Ride the wave of emotion and fear. Shed a tear, find the light, or maybe learn to fear the darkness. We're in the final countdown. Look for my book, Escaping the Darkness, coming this June. And tell your grandma to stay away. Submissions are now open until August 1st for the Sweetie Cat Press Anthology, The Whole Wide World. The submissions should be episodes of no more than 3,000 words and as few as 50 words about the worldwide adventures of Detective Curly Knucklewad and his assistant, Miss Wanda Wowser, as they go on a manhunt for the unknown thief of the limp noodle sauce recipe stolen from the secret government food laboratory in San Francisco. Submission guidelines are in the blog section of the Sweetie Cat Press website at sweetiecatpress.com. That's Sweetie Cat press.com s-w-e-e-t-y-c-a-t-p-r-e-s-s dot com summertime is here and the best way to beat the heat is with these great deals at mythmark.com Join the adventure with sisters Emma and Olivia as they journey through the land of imagination in search of Yoon, the magical unicorn, in David K. Montoya's The Missing Unicorn and the Land of the Zombie Fairies. Or travel with poet Christopher Bice as he shares his thoughts on love, death, inspiration, and madness in Escaping the Darkness, Running from My Dreams. If fantasy romance is more your speed, join Celeste and Merrick as they figure out how to defeat the evil Ren doll while they figure out the plans of the elders in Stephanie J. Vardy's The Chosen. Like comic books? We got them too! Hot Off the Press is American Smash by Alan Russo and David K. Montoya for $4.99. Or enjoy our older releases like The Hunter's Exodus for only $2.99. Also just in time for the summer are these other hot deals like Zoe M. Montoya's Uni Whale t-shirt, blue for boys and pink for girls, only $33.99. Or Lupus Bits the Podcast shirt for $27.99. For all our art lovers, we have something for you too with our prints and lithographs. Check out the Ed Bickford collection for $15 each or enjoy the art of Vincent May for $15. We have everything you'll need to stay inside and beat the summertime heat at MythMart.com. For more information, go to www.MythMart.com. Call us at 870-557-2612 or email sales at MythMart.com. And now, enjoy this free JZO Modcast show. Welcome to the Grindhouse Sleeves. I'm your host, Alan Russo. I'm Dave Montoya. All right, kitties. Today is going to be an interesting topic. Yeah. We're going to dive into Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy Fit. There's a lot of people that don't like this film. You know what? I enjoyed it. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> well, are we talking about the first time we've seen it or like, you know, 30 years later when I watched it again? Yeah, both. 
even as a little boy, when I first saw it, I, I just, it didn't, the whole, I mean, I, I get the concept, you know, instead of it being a heroine, they, they have it as a dude, you know, instead of a damsel in distress, it's a dude. And typically, 99.999% of the time, you know, that's not how horror works. It, it's, uh, you know, it's usually a female. But with that said, as an adult, I realized how unique that concept was. Uh, in fact, that is kind of what happens in with the mongers, uh, you know, plug, plug, plug. You expect a damsel in distress kind of situation, but it, it actually ends up being a dude. And I, I openly admit that idea came from Night Reynolds Street Part 2, Freddy's Revenge, because it was a unique idea. Now, you, yes, there was, of course, all the, the uh, homoeroticism that was missed on a child you know i i totally missed it as a kid but you know that's just something there's and you've seen this too it's it's the whole um what is that the documentary uh screen queen my nightmare on street yes and you know it was um i don't know i i still even though they say it was not to me watching it I, I feel like it is very, it was intentional. Oh, yeah. You know, you could tell it was intentional, but, you know, look at the time frame that it came out. You know, you're talking mid to late 80s. The whole underground gay club scene was coming to the forefront. You know, it wasn't the whole background thing like it was in the 70s. Right. You're talking, you know, these biker leather you know these biker bound leather guys that didn't ride motorcycles you know the bondage gear basically yeah and you know as an adult you notice it a lot more right you know you don't as a kid you don't notice it i mean you kind of notice it here and there it's just weird as a kid you're like that's weird you know that's not your normal trope of you know but you don't know why it's weird at, at right. that age. I mean, you know, it's, it, there is that whole, I hear it goes to queer bar, you know, to the queer clubs at night. You're talking about the, the coach. Right, right, but right. That's about the only thing that's mentioned about anything gay. Openly. Yeah, Openly. mentioned. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they talk about, you know, and, and the bar they used was an actual gay bar. Oh, did they? Yeah. That was the actual outside of the gay bar. Well, even, and I again, re- referencing it, and we'll probably be referencing this documentary a lot because it really opened up the, the questions and the speculations that we all had in the last 30 years of part two. And it kind of answered them also, you know, using that as a reference point, you know, and, and to the point where it was like uh, there was that interview that with Robert England, which, you know, belated happy birthday to Robert England. 72. Can you believe that? 72. Right. Didn't believe it. <laughs> you know, he was talking about how he read the script and he felt that it was very homoerotic. And he was like, okay, you know, which I thought was pretty cool, especially being in that era of the 80s, you know, when, when the whole AIDS epidemic started happening and, and, and all of that. He was like, hey, I'm cool. And in fact, there was one scene where he, he was talking about, you know, how he wanted to play with his his claw, one of his gloves, you know, and, and it was it was very, you know, he was talking about how you know he would caress like a woman's face with the claw. I mean, what was uh, what's his name, Mark? Uh, Mark Patton. Patton. Thank you. But uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I just, I guess it's just something that you have to grow into as an adult. I mean, the the storyline, meh, meh. The acting, meh. But it's become a, a cult classic of, of its own. It's, it's almost like a separate entity beyond the Nightmare on the Street for that community. Right. Well, I mean, if, if you look at the, the email, the, even with the gay undertone, uh-huh. you know, when Robert England did that scene, like you said, that was a complete accident. But it worked. And, you know, like Mark Patton said, even he noticed that the script was written with, you know, homoerotic undertones. Right. You know, 
he didn't think much of it. He's just like, okay, well, that's, that's what they want, you know, not thinking that it was actually homoerotic, you know, and, but nobody knew at the time he was a gay actor. No, because they kept all that under wraps back then. Right. You know, because you were a gay actor, you know, you didn't get cast except for an underground film. Right. And, you know, with him, you know, he kept it all under wraps, but he's like, man, this is some gay shit. <laughs> yeah, really. Reading the script and everything, and, you know, that's, you know, he said in the documentary, that's when he talked about the bar that they used was an actual gay bar. And in my opinion, you can see a lot of the homoerotic stages throughout the film. You know, like yeah. the way he's in his bedroom and all that stuff. And then, you know, she walks in, he's got the little thing and he pops it. You know, it's like that that was meant to be a sexual reference that he saw her, boom, you know. Right. Instant boner, but it kind of, if you look at it, it goes a little bit dark, deeper and darker than that now that you look at it now. Yeah, well, that, they didn't have no chemistry. There was no chemistry whatsoever between those two characters. No, there was not. It was just kind of, it was felt forced, you know, and then the whole, you know, Robert England's line about, you know, getting his, you know, I have his body and all this shit. It's like, yeah, that's a little gay. <laughs> yeah, that, that, yeah, the, again, the undertone right. was just there. And there was a lot of them. You know, especially when the coach is always like, you know, hit the showers. And then he walks into the shower while Jesse's taking a shower. And it's like, but you knew he was coming from a gay bar. So it's like, yeah, that's why he's going in the shower. Didn't uh -huh. have nothing, you know, he was wanting a piece of that. Uh -huh. <laughs> and you can tell, you know, I mean, even when you look at Grady's room, that wasn't a typical teenage boy's bedroom. No. When you think about it, a poster of the stray cats and all pinks and purple, <laughs> you know, the large, fluffy, like silk, uh, <laughs> yeah, and you know, and then it's like, and then the one part when they're in the cabana kissing her, you know, doing their thing, and then he's like, you know, he it looks like he almost felt gross doing that scene again. Like it didn't, I didn't feel because she she was attractive i mean even when it came out what did it come out my 87 i was 10 okay yeah. so even as for a 10 year old there was like oh she's attractive but yeah there there was no again there was just like yeah you can tell you know that he was acting you know you could tell it was forced it wasn't comfortable and things of that and, and you could see it you know and every time they had dealing you could always see the the oddity of him being with a woman, you know, you could tell it, there was no chemistry. There was no sexual tension. Right. But you could see it when he was with Grady, you know, you could see the little bit of sexual play. <laughs> yeah. You like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, even yeah. with the coach, you know, with the coach, you could see the sexual tension. Like, okay. Where was he from? I, wasn't he from something else too recently? Well, not uh, recently, but yeah. The, uh, I don't remember. I know he's done some other stuff. Yeah, I don't know off the top of my head, but he just seems like I don't know. I think he was really uh, he was like a big character actor. Do you think how did or how do I say this? Freddie, you know the character of Freddie, right? It it felt like it was the only movie in the franchise that actually had very little to do with Freddie for the most part. Yeah, I mean. There wasn't a whole lot to do with Freddy. Oh, it came out in 1985. Okay, so I was eight. Yeah, I was five when it came out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, let's see. I'm looking for... What was the coach's name, do you remember? Uh, they changed... Mar uh, Marshall Bell was the name of the coach. What was it? Marshall Bell. I'm on uh, IMDb right now. I am too. Oh, there he is. Okay, Marshall Bell. Oh, uh, let's see. He did Star Trip, Starship Troopers, Total Recall. Yep. Here lately, he hasn't really done anything that I've seen. No, I mean, he did an episode of the new Hawaii Five O, but I haven't watched that. Right. I mean, he was in Southland for a couple episodes. Let's see. I mean, really, he hasn't nothing really big. 
maybe that's what I was thinking of. Maybe I was thinking of Total Recall. Because now that I'm thinking about it, he was the dude with the, the thing on him. You know, inside of they go to sea. And it was like his right. brother was inside of him. That's the same right. dude. Okay. And then, you know, of course, Starship Troopers. Yes. You know, he got eaten by the, the bug. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, like, yeah, other than that, he really didn't do a whole lot. And, I mean, you know. Yeah. I mean, I'm just kind of looking through and, like, you know, there's not a whole lot. I mean, you know, he had that bit part and stand by me. And so, I mean, you know, he didn't really do a whole lot. But one of the interesting characters, for me anyway, was Mr. Walsh. Now, you know, he's a famous character actor. Right. You know, most people know him from, you know, Return of the Living Dead and all kinds of other movies. And, you know, his character was interesting. Because, like, no matter what his son did or said, he didn't believe him. You know, he was kind of that idiot of a parent. Didn't really care, you know. <laughs> yeah. The toaster catches on fire. Oh, I'll fix it. You know, or it's just a gas leak. It's a toaster. <laughs> you know, I'm going to be a gas. <laughs> you know, it's like, dude, you don't have a clue. You know, it's kind of funny. And, you know, like I said, of course, he's been in a lot of these character acting for years. Now, jumping back over to Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, I was sitting there thinking about this. What? Because you're talking about, you know, the dad and all that. and, and Right. But there was a lot of nonsensical things, right? That, I don't know, I like, okay, Freddy comes out and he's like, you know, you're all my children. You know, and he starts slashing hot, you know. Right. And then he jumps through the gate and he disappears. But, but you know, the, it goes in like, um, okay, number one, you just seen all a lot of your friends get, you know, sliced and diced. They're probably dead. And then you see this guy who's burnt jump through a fence into nothingness. Yeah. And then and they just kind of left it there. You're like, uh <laughs> Right. And then he shows back up in the house, chasing her around, boiling fish and <laughs> like, you know, a lot of it just did not make sense. It really didn't. Now, was that the one with the, the freak dogs, right? The two of the, the monster dogs? Was that it? Am I thinking of that one? Well, no, that's a, I think that was part six. Was it? Gate, that was at the gate. Of, no. It was when she, that's when she goes to the factory. It's like the, Yeah, it was the dogs with the human face. That's when she was entering the factory. Yeah, that was freaky as hell. Yeah, and that came out of nowhere, and it's like, what the fuck is that shit? That that was probably the best scene in the whole movie. I mean, you know, and the only thing that tied the first one, the second one to the first one, is the fact that, you know, Nancy's diary was in the closet. Yeah. The really thing that, you know, that in the house. Other than that, you know, the house, the diary, and Freddie. Those are the only three things made it an actual sequel if you take those three elements out and put a different how use the diary but make it about some off the wall lunatic that was sitting to an asylum right and took freddy out completely and replaced it with a just a regular slasher you know whatever it still would have worked as a film because that was the only thing that that in the town of springwood the only thing that tied it to the original i mean you could have changed you know most of the you know just a handful of details and changed the entire plot of the movie oh absolutely you, you can tell the script wasn't written to technically be a nightmare on street script it it just yeah it felt very i don't know i mean the what was it you know because i'm trying to remember what do you know about the script? What do you know as far as like backstory? I really don't know a whole lot of backstory. You know, it was, it was kind of one of those scripts that was just thrown together because I mean, it came out a year after the original. Right. You know, so it was kind of one of those, from what I'm gathering, it's one of those scripts like that somebody had written and it was just kind of sitting around. Uh -huh. And it wasn't like for a particular movie in general. And it's like, hey, let's throw, you know, Freddy into it. Let's, you know, use the house, let's do the diary, boom, you've got a sequel. 
it, you know, it feels like it was written for something else. Yeah. Like, okay. It was, uh, like they, this is how it feels. It's like, it was written like this horror film that didn't really have a conclusion. And they're like, Oh yeah. Freddy Krueger's got to be in it. And then they wrote Freddy in certain pieces. Right. That didn't fit with the rest of the story. Right. It's like, they were like, okay, well let's throw him in there. And then, Fit the story around that, you know, not really what it feels like. Oh, no, I totally agree. Totally agree. Yeah. It was, I, it was and I won't lie because it, it took me years, decades to watch it again. Seriously, right. I think I watched it twice as a child. And then I wouldn't watch it again until I was in my late 20s, probably. Exactly. The only reason I think why we got back into it is because we were doing a Nightmare on Elm Street marathon. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we always, every time we've done it, we always skipped over part two. We actually watched like, part two. Yeah. And then we always went, and then I think the last time me and you did the marathon, we actually went back and watched part two just for shits and giggles. And it's, it's, I know it sounds like we're sitting there ripping it apart, but that's kind of what we do here at the Grindhouse is we, we kind of dissect movies. You know, Russo and I do kind of have a background in, in said movie. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we, we kind of have an idea of what we're talking about. But um, but we're not really, we're not tearing it apart. We're dissecting. Because overall, I've, I've come to say it's okay. I mean, I, I don't love the movie. I don't know if like would be. A, like feels like a strong word to me. Yeah. What about you? I would say the same thing. It's enjoyable. Like just, every five to ten years kind of thing. Just pop it in yeah. there. Yeah, just pop it in there. You know, if you're watching Nightmare on Street, you want to watch them all, just pop it in there every now and again. One of the best, uh, who did? It was Andrew Dice Clay said it best. And I'm going to use this in the terms of watching Nightmare on Street 2. For me, it is. Watching Nightmare on Street 2 is like masturbating with a cheese grater. It's painful, it's bloody, but it's quite amusing in the end. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's Yo. a good analogy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, for the most part, yeah, it's painful, it's bloody, but it's amusing. Yep. I mean, I will, I will say that for the most part, not a bad sequel. It's just they didn't use Freddy like they should have. Now, like I was talking to Jaden, and for those who don't know who I am, Jaden is my, my oldest child, my son. And just in the recent few years, he's discovered horror movies, and that's he loves horror movies. But we were discussing this, and he's like, well, is Nightmare on Elm Street 2 better than the Nightmare on Elm Street remake? What do you say? Uh, I would probably say no. I mean, it's not a bad film. The remake is not bad. But it adds a lot more to the story of Freddy. I mean, Jack Earl Haley, he was a horrible Freddy. Don't get me wrong. Horrible Freddy. If you enjoyed it, great for you. But Robert England did Freddy the best. And, you know, Jack Earl Haley, like I said, wasn't bad. It's just when you're used to somebody like Robert England playing Freddy, it, you can't see anybody else doing it. Right. It, you know, I mean, the overall story of the remake i enjoyed i think it was a better story than part two i mean just for the simple fact that you know they took everything we knew about freddie and actually brought it to the forefront we knew he was a child molester they never really said it but it brought it to the forefront you know yeah. and you know with part two like i said it's it's watchable entertaining but it's more comedic than it should have been. Yeah, because I don't think back then in a part two, because I, okay, this is just my opinion, is I feel like they were very surprised about how good the first one was. And they didn't quite understand because remember we, we caught that in the, um, they were actually going to replace Robert England as Freddy Krueger. Remember? Yeah. So they didn't quite understand Freddy Krueger at that point. And I think it was very visible in their interpretation. Now, come part three, 
which we will talk about one day, which they, the person knew who, who was put in the movie, they understood the character of Freddy Krueger. Right. Well, and I think, too, you know, what helped is part two actually made decent at the box office. In my opinion, if you take part two out of the series and go from one to three, it flows better. It does. Because you're bringing Nancy back so many years later, the house is run down, nobody's lived in it, you know, all that other bullshit. So it it flows better, you know. It does a whole story. Right. Because you're continuing the original story. Part two is kind of like, part two seems like it just happens a couple years after the original event. And it feels like a filler, you know, of what happens between one and three, you know, that it's a story they needed to tell that nobody really cared about. And that's what it feels like, you know, it's like a couple years after, you know, Nancy's mom dies, Nancy goes off to college, the house is put up for sale, somebody buys it, now you're in part two. And then, you know, after the events of part two, you're back to Nancy coming home, trying to figure everything out. You have a new group of kids, but that new group of kids, you know, which doesn't fit, in my opinion, because in the first one, she said that she's the last, you know, Nancy and them were the last to be on the children. Right. And so now all of a sudden, she's telling them in part three that they're the last. You know, it's like, wait a minute. You know, some, I think somebody screwed up. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But at the same time, when you think about it, you know, she probably didn't know about those kids, you know, because they were they're so much younger than her. So, you know, and when you think about it, some of those kids could have been brothers and sisters of the original cast that nobody knew about. Or didn't even think about. I mean, because they were never mentioned, so you didn't know about them. But, you know, they said the parents of Elm Street, so, you know, they were probably kids that lived on that road, you know, that lived on that street that were several houses down that they didn't know, you know, that just they thought they were just neighborhood kids because you got to think there's a guessing there's at least a six year difference between the events of part one and the events of part two. Right. She's, she's already finished her PhD. Now she's got to do her field work and all that stuff. So you're talking at least six to eight years. You know, looking at part two, I think it's just a filler, you know, just kind of in between. Just, they threw you know, it why, together to yeah, make money. Right. Because of how big the first one was, they were just trying to capitalize on part one to keep it fresh while they were writing part three. Because if you look at the timeline, you know, you can tell, because like you said, you know, my dad got this house cheap, been on the market for a little while, nobody wanted to buy it. You know, you find Nancy's diary in the closet which tells you that nobody's lived in that house since all that happened right since all that happened and you know nobody wanted to buy the house because of all the events that happened so that's like okay that's why you got to cheat because so, we never actually find out well obviously in part three they live well nancy lived but we we don't know because at the end of part one remember they got in the the car and you know the the convertible top and it was it was freddie's sweater and right. it, it drew, drove off on its own and that was it that was the last thing we know so we really right. don't know what happened i mean no you don't and you know you can only assume you know because nancy lived through the first one you know she survived so you can only basically just assume that the ending where everybody's in the convertible top comes down mom gets through the window and all that that was just a dream you know, because, you know, her mom died and everything like that. And then she gets rid of him. Or so you think, you know, everything's back to normal. But was it really? Or was that just a dream that she concocted in her head to get through the trauma? Because she says in part three, he killed my friends. Yeah. Yeah. So the conclusion to part one is actually in part three. Or you know what actually happened. And, you know, like I said, though, with part two, to me, it was a... Rush, let's get a second movie made. So we're going to put the events in part two a year or two after the events of part two. And in the long run, it didn't hold up. But I think it was a quick kick to get a second one out there and stuff like that. I mean, it works. If you actually pay attention to the events of part two, it works in the trilogy of things because the events happen between part one and part three. Okay, I'm going to drop something on you. 
that I bet you didn't know because I didn't know and I just found this out. Do you know who the original pick for Jesse Walsh was? No. Michael J. Fox, but he was already committed with Back to the Future and King Wolf in 1985. He was he was meant to be that character. That he dodged a bullet there. Yeah, he did. <laughs> yeah, I just going through uh, different things. Like this is pretty cool. The original glove from Nightmare on Elm Street, nineteen eighty four, was used in this movie. It, so it was the same glove that he had in part two, and was also seen hanging on the wall of the work shed in The Evil Dead. Part 2, 1987. This was in response to the use of The Evil Dead, 1981, on the television screen in Nightmare on Elm Street, 1984, and part of the continued banter between directors Wes Craven and Sam Raimi. However, when Wes Craven loaned the glove to the Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors, 1987 set, it was lost and eventually found by a Freddy fan, Mike Becker, at the auction in 2009. I am going to have to watch because I have that. I have the uh, the Evil Dead too. Right. It's been a while since I've watched the Evil Dead too. Yeah, I actually I own that one, so I'll have to go check it out. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, well, it's like you know, there's a lot of ties to other movies in the Nightmare on Elm Street series. You know, there there are little Easter eggs that you got to find, which is interesting enough, and. You know, but my thing is, I think, and there's also little Easter eggs for all of Wes Craven's movies in the Nightmare on Elm Street series. Yeah. Let's see. I'm trying to see if I can find any more uh, interesting notes. Uh, Robert England has publicly stated that Freddy's Revenge was his least favorite Nightmare on Elm Street movie. I think that was public knowledge. Did you know that the director, Jack Shooter? Couldn't direct the Wolf's house scene without cracking up or laughing, so he gave it to his assistant to direct instead. Hmm. I mean, that was a crappy scene. <laughs> Made me laugh. Nightmare on Elm Street 2 was just, you put it on for laughs. You don't put it on because you're a Freddy fan. Yeah, you put it on and fall asleep, ironically enough. <laughs> right. Okay, interesting enough, you brought this up. The line, you've got the body, I got the brains was actually Robert Shea's idea, the, the producer and the, the founder of New Line Cinema. Right. That was his idea to add in. I kind of figured it was. Well, of course, you know, he's got a cameo in the movie, too. I don't know if you caught that. No. Well, yeah, he's he, in all of them, actually. Yeah. He was the bartender in the gay boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the dance scene was meant to be a homage to Risky, Bis- Risky Business in 1983, sensing impending embarrassment Mark Patton was reluctant to film it, which resulted in it being repeatedly postponed. It was initially stated that the, in a Never Sleep Again documentary that Patton's choreographed the scene himself, telling the filmmakers to just roll the camera while he gave it the best shot. Patton later changed his story, telling Without Your Head that there's, there's nothing Jesse does in the movie that's not scripted. Okay. Uh, he said that in the Screen Queen documentary, too, that everything he did was written in the script, even how he did certain things. Uh, let's see. While the scene has haunted some of the involved parties for years, Patton says it enjoyed an extended popularity at the gay club time to time. Okay. Yeah, it's a real big, uh, it has a real big cult following in the gay community. Robert Russler auditioned for the role of Ron, Gr- Ron Grady on the last day of shooting Weird Science. Who drove him to the audition? Oh. Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> Wouldn't surprise me. Uh, Heather Langenkamp was never asked to come back, and producers never thought of adding her to the story. But we will publicly say we have a, an open invocation to Heather Lang- Langenkamp if she just happens to hear this, PCE Scarefare, October 30th, San Bernardino Fairgrounds. We'd love to have you. That'd be an awesome addition. Yeah, there's there's some interesting things. One of the inspirations for Freddy's look in this film was the Wicked Witch of the West from Wizard of Oz. Okay. Ooh, that doesn't make sense, but yeah. Yeah, no kidding. 
And let's see, what else we got? Uh, Lisa finds Nancy's diary while helping Jesse unpack. She reads the address is 1428 Elm Street. The address of the house used for all of the exterior shots was 1428 North Gin C Avenue in West Hollywood. I kind of knew that one. Yeah. Jesse's car is the same car used in the television series Freddy's Nightmares 1988. It is used by Lar Pack Lincoln in Freddy's Nightmares It's a Miserable Life 1988 episode. In the breakfast scene near the beginning, the family is eating Fu Manchu's cereal. I remember seeing that. With the, the fingers? Remember the little girl? Yeah, this is yeah the- with the fingers. Yeah. Here's a couple of interesting facts for you. Little air okay. okay. All right. When Jesse's unpacking his room and turns on the music, he presses fast forward instead of the play button. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And then at the at the beginning of the movie, when the, they're eating breakfast, you know, talking about the breakfast scene, uh-huh. Ken calls wife mom. The dad calls, you know, because the dad says, "Hey, mom." I don't know if you ever caught that. No. Uh. Uh-uh. Uh. Yeah. And uh, that's the only time he does it in the whole movie. The rest of the time he calls her by her name that's weird <laughs> and then here's here's like some continuity because some continuity errors multiple characters routinely wear the same outfits and scenes that are supposed to be happening on different days oops <laughs> right in every scene filmed in the basement of jesse's house the basement door opens into into the room during the last scene in the room the camera pans to the door but it opens into the hall Around 25 minutes in, the broom Jesse's dad is holding while the bird is flying around disappears. I never caught that. No, me neither. And then the text on the school bus at, at the very beginning varies between school bus being one word and two words. And then the size ah. of the, the size of Freddie's brim on his hat keeps changing throughout the film. Really? Yeah. Well, I knew they used different hats during the filming. <laughs> the brim was always a different size. I never noticed that. Me neither. Somebody I think needs to, well, needed a better continuity editor, right? Or producer. Well, you know, and then when Coach Schneider gets hit with the hit with a towel, you can actually uh-huh. see the you can actually see the marks on his butt before you ever get struck. Interesting. I, that. <laughs> I have to admit, I wasn't looking at his butt. Sure. Like. <laughs> <laughs> Here's an interesting little error. And thinking back on it, it says during the softball game, Grady hits the ball and you hear it bouncing on the ground. Immediately after, Jesse's hit by a fly ball. Oops. <laughs> it almost makes me want to watch it again. It really does. Right. Now, here's another thing. Like, uh, you know, talking about the Fu Man, the Fu Man fingers. Yeah, yeah. They jump, they've jumped from her left hand to her right hand between shots. Nice. And the cereal box, she pulled the Fu Man fingers out of. The box was on the table before she pulled them out. And the very next shot, the box is in her hand. And you never see her grab the box. What the Ooh. hell? <laughs> right? Around two minutes in, in the opening scene, the kids on the bus are seen standing up and walking towards the door while the bus is still moving. The next shot, they're all sitting down until the bus stops. Oops. Yeah, seriously, somebody needed to be a better continuity uh, producer, director, whatever you want to call them. Let's see. You know, uh, oh, here's an interesting thing. I didn't notice this, but when he's taking off the uh, the bars on the windows, uh, and once in one shot he's wearing a blue shirt, and another shot he's wearing a plaid shirt. Oops. That's that, a, that's that, a, wow. That's a big mistake. I mean, he's on the ladder the whole time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it's like, hello. Dumbasses. <laughs> Just saying. And they still got funding for part three, which is amazing. Right. Uh, when leaving the pool party, Jesse is wearing the same clothes that he was wearing when Coach Snyder was killed. Jesse was found naked by the police, so so couldn't have gotten them back if left there. There, there would likely be taken by the police as evidence, so there's no way he could still possess those clothes. There is a plethora of mistakes in this movie. Oh my god, dude, I'm like reading a bunch of them. Around 10 minutes in, Jesse and Grady are fighting with each other on the baseball field, and Coach Schneider starts to walk over. In the background, you can see a male crew member behind the coach. In the next shot, you can see him encouraging 
Jesse and Grady to keep fighting with each other. <laughs> okay, here's an interesting, and you know, you, you'd have to really pay attention. In the first movie, what color was Nancy's door? Was it red? No, it was blue. From that point, from part two forward, it was red. Really? Yeah. In the original, it was a blue door. It was red in part two, and it remained red all the way throughout, through throughout the sequel. Interesting enough. There's a, you speaking of red door, there's a, a short film I made about five, six years ago called Hello. And um, there's a, it's a, a dramatic shot of a red door and we back off of it. Yeah. And you never, and you never really see it again because it's a short film, but that whole shot, the red door was actually a homage for Nightmare on Elm Street because it's always a red door. So that's right. why you say that. I didn't realize that part one was blue. Yep. And and here's something that that's pretty obvious of a mistake. All right. First two movies are supposed to be Springwood, Ohio. Uh-huh. But you notice there's palm trees in the background in both films. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so oh. that's, you know, that's not typical for Ohio. Right. And then in part two, when they drive off the road, where do they drive off into? Desert. There's no deserts around Ohio. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, hello. I mean, now you're going into a dream sequence. It can happen, okay, but a little far fetched. Well, you know, and what was it? Part four, I think it was. They started mentioning that Springwood was in California or some shit. Was it? I don't remember that. Well, I know in the first one, and it's a little error in the first one when they're in his car, uh, Johnny Depp's character's car. His license plate, and even in Jesse's, even on Jesse's car, you can see the same thing. It's got California tag. Yes. Both, yes. I remember that. Movies. Yeah. Yeah. In both movies, they have California tags and it's supposed to be set in Ohio. And here's an interesting little plot hole that I just thought about this one. Lisa finds the, the female character, Lisa finds Nancy's diary. But at no point in the first one do you ever see Nancy riding in the diary. That's true. That's very true. But that's not to say, in the events, you know, that you're not actually seeing on films, you get to write a diary. But the entry that she reads takes place before the beginning of part one, you know, because she talks about, have you ever had a weird dream? And that thing that she described wasn't part of the dream sequence you see at the beginning with Nancy. Makes sense. Because he comes to me at night. So this isn't, you know, so this and, is leading up to that point. And if you think about it, Nobody in part two was killed in their dreams. They were all killed awake. Think about it. Right. Right. Well, but you got to think about it, though. He was using Jesse's body. So, you know, and, and this was kind of the thing that I thought was, you know, I was thinking the same thing about they were all killed, you know, being awake. It's like Grady was sleeping. He's like, you know, and then he wakes him up saying it's happening again. Right. So it makes me wonder if he wasn't using Jesse's body as a vessel to come into, you know, during the time when he was, you know, people were awake. That or the writer and director just had no clue what they were doing. Right. <laughs> they didn't. They weren't paying attention that he was a dream killer. You know, he killed him in the dream. Kind of one of those interesting little screwed up errors. Yeah. I don't know, man. I I... And there's all kinds of mistakes, you know, where I'm looking, there's all kinds of mistakes in this movie. They're, they're reading the diary and the pages are blank. <laughs> you know it's visually blank? Yeah. Wow. See, I don't know. I, I might actually sit down and rewatch this one because, I mean, other than the butt shots, you know, there's a couple right. of, of butt shots. That's that's it. I'll probably get some hate mail for saying this, but I think that's what, I think that's probably the tamest of the Nightmare on Street. And Zoe could probably break her teeth on that. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Because there wasn't any nudity in the first one either. Yeah, but just it's the... the the It's it's a little darker. It's scarier. It's scary. Yeah. The first one is scary. The second one... Yeah. It isn't there, scary. No. And the third one, it's kind of... It's a kind of a myth. It's more of a developmental type story than actually being scary. Now, see, my... For a long time, and I guess just because I'm getting older, my ch my taste changes. For the longest time, part three was my favorite 
Nightmare on Elm Street. But it's it's become like it's a toss up between three and four, to be honest with you. Yeah. And I don't know if it's because I've met, you know, we had Lisa Wilcox, who is Alice in four and five. She was at PCE last year. Right. And she was absolutely first class. She was a very cool person. So I don't know if that's what elevated it to it, or it's just I don't know. It just I dig it. I three, four, and five I really like. Freddy's dead. I just felt kind of like they missed it on something on a on a level. I think they were the only thing I didn't like about Freddy's dead is they tried to go back and add to his backstory. You know, because up until that point he had he didn't really have a backstory other than he was killed by the family of the Elm Street kids that he had killed. That's it. That was his backstory. Yeah. Then you go in and you add that he had a daughter and how he was beaten and whipped when he was younger and he enjoyed the pain. It's like, okay, now you're going, now you're getting way too far. Yeah. Backstory that nobody cared about. Nobody, I mean, don't get me wrong. Yeah, I wanted more of a Freddy backstory to know why he was the way he was. And, you know, the whole Dream Master thing, you know, that's how he got his powers. Great. That was great. You know, that's information we needed because he was killed. They burned him to death. So how did he come back? You know, they never said it really up until that point. Right. So that was a great addition. But to add that he had a daughter, you know, that was that was a little far fetched. I mean, because up until this point, you had no clue that he had kids. So why add that? Or um, be married, yeah. Right. I mean, not really assumed it because, I mean, shit. There was no information to tell you any different. But that backstory kind of, I was like, what the hell? You know, that's stupid. And, you know, she's the only one that can kill him and all that. I'm like, really? Now you're grasping for straws. <laughs> You know, yeah, and you know, has amnesia. He's from Springwood, but you go to Springwood and it's a fucking desolate town with no kids. Yeah, you know, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, there's a lot of continuity, continuity errors and stuff like that in part six. You know, they're they're adding information that really nobody. Yeah, I mean, the fact that he was whipped and he was beaten and he enjoyed it. He was a cutter. I was like, yeah, no. That that's you're getting way too deep now. They tried um, to humanize him. That was my big thing. Well, I don't think it was they were trying to humanize him. I think it was more of a they tried to show that how much of a psychopath that he was because he was the son of a house maniac. See, I that's mean, that's that's a perfect backstory right there. That's all you need. Right. <laughs> <laughs> mother was a nun she was raped by a thousand guys that were criminally insane that's all you need made perfect sense <laughs> it did it really did and I like 3, 4, and 5 because it's the same story being continued through all three yes well if you watch 1, 3, 4, and 5 it tells the whole story right because you know 1 you got 1 then three comes in, Nancy comes back. You have the events of three. Of course, Joey and Kincaid, Kirsten, they all make it out, which is another interesting fact that usually only one makes it out alive, not three. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, those three make it out alive, but then Joey and Kincaid die at the beginning of the first move, at the beginning of part four. Right. So that's when you bring in Alice and you bring in her brother and you bring in a whole new list of characters. And then you continue on with Alice in part four, in part five. Did you know, and this is from her lips to my ears, there was supposed to be a part six of the continuing story. I kind of figured there was because of the ending of part five. Yeah, because there's no story. We don't know what happened to Alice. Well, we do. There's a comic book floating around. Right. Jacob grows up, Alice is old, and there's a story floating around how the ending of it, because that was supposed to be, it was modernized, but I think IDW did it. But yeah, it was supposed to continue on. Huh. And for because some reason, 
they just decided they were going to, they decided that was it. They were done with Nightmare on the Street with Freddy's Dead. They had no plans on doing anything else after that. Well, I mean, they didn't even have plans for Freddy's Dead because it came out, what, three or four years, five years after part five? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, you're talking, you know, years. Yeah, I'm st- go ahead. I'm, I'm still looking at okay. stuff here. Yeah. I mean, because you're talking, you know, a few years between the two. So it's like, I guess they felt like they needed to, you know, we, we need to end this, you know, give everybody closure and finally end it. You know, and I think that's what they felt. But, you know, in my opinion, they didn't need that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I wish. I think that's what was so dynamic about them, though, is that, like you were saying, it told the whole story. It felt like a natural flow. It was almost episodic. Yeah. Yeah. You know, part two was like, okay, they just threw that in there to fill it. Keep fans happy until they come out with part three. I mean, that's the way it feels. Yes. I mean, because, you know, the house wasn't condemned yet. It was condemned in part three. You know, they just needed a filler in between. And right. it, was, it was written all along. You know, it, it's like the whole thing was rushed into production. And you can tell it was. That's kind of where I'm at with it and everything. It's like it fit because you can look at it as, the events that happened between part one and part three while Nancy's off to college. Yes. At the same time, you can remove it completely out of the franchise and it still works. I mean, that that's, you know, that movie is kind of interchangeable. You can put it in as a reference to what happens in Springwood in between those two movies, or you can take it out completely and part three becomes part two, you know, and so on and so forth. So it makes perfect sense either way you look at it. Like I said, it's not a it's not a bad movie overall. It's just poor quality. Yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, it's like they threw Freddy in there just so they can say it was a Nightmare on Elm Street film. Exactly, because it could have been written. You know, you could have taken that the character of Freddy and completely removed him and added some other factors and taken the Nightmare on Elm Street Nightmare on Elm Street factions out and it still works okay go ahead and send them out from the grand house sleeve i'm alan russo i'm dave montoya and we will catch y'all next week have a good week